0: Well, good morning and welcome to Trinity Bible Church for those who are guests or or family that are visiting as well as as all of you. Uh, We have a few announcements this morning. Uh, The first is that if you are a VBS uh, leader or serving in any way, there will be a a brief meeting after the service today. Uh, If you have any questions about that, uh, you need to talk to uh, Chrissy Owens, Chrissy if you don't know her, you signed up to work with her, so now you're going to get to know her. Uh, also, uh, on a, um, May 21st, uh, there will be another uh, people, a group of people who are already getting baptized. And so if you are um, interested in baptism and uh, are seeking to either get baptized or one of your children... Uh, please contact one of the elders to begin a conversation about that. Again, that'll be in two Sundays on the 21st. On that same Sunday, we will have a men's luncheon after the baptisms, which are after the service, which are actually part of the service, but it'll be baptisms and then a men's luncheon. The luncheon in particular will be a follow-up for the one we had in March uh, with two primary subjects. Uh, The first will be um, the pursuit and nature of mortification of sin, And the second part will be kind of comprehensively comprehensively discussing and going over and offering resources for men leading family worship. And so that'll be the, the emphasis of that particular luncheon. And the most important announcement, which is a surprise, including to me, is that Michaela Bertaccini is here. If you don't know who Michaela is, there is a picture of her outside on the wall. And so she is one of the uh, supported missionaries uh, that from here that is sent out by Trinity. And so she is here today coming to, to celebrate uh, with family, with some graduations of her younger siblings. And so she's visiting us today. And so if you haven't had an opportunity, and I haven't even asked her, but she surprised me, so she has to. She has to... She has to stay and, and if anyone wants to come up and meet her and ask her how she's doing and a lot of hugs as well as people that, that are happy to see her. So Michaela is, is in the back there as well. So uh, what a blessing it is to have her here today. Uh, okay, those are all the announcements. We are in uh, Matthew chapter 17. Uh, this morning I'll be um, covering verses 1 through 8. Uh, it, I will read through the entirety of our verses this morning that we'll be, that we'll be discussing and, and give you an opportunity after the reading of those verses to, to pray silently. Uh, pray that God, would uh, uh, the Holy Spirit, would illuminate uh, your heart and mind to the truth of the Word. Uh, it's an excellent time if you are walking right now in unrepentant sin, also as we anticipate taking the Lord's Supper today. Uh, this time of silent prayer is a time to confess your sins to God. Um, leave them to Him. Uh, Those are sins that Christ died for. And it is also a time just to anticipate this continued time of public worship. Reading now from Matthew 17, verses 1 through 8. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John his brother and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one else, no one but Jesus only. Please take this time to pray. Heavenly Father, as the church gathers this morning, as your assembly comes to worship you and celebrate the resurrection of the Son, Jesus Christ, Lord, we do so through the power of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, who regenerates and indwells and seals each believer. A promised inheritance a portion of which we will be ours and our in fullness when Christ returns. And as now the church, we are, we are gathered on this, the Lord's Day, and through these elements of worship, through prayer, through fellowship, through praise, through the ministry of the word, and through the elements of the Lord's Supper, we pronounce the truth of who you are, We pronounce to those that that are in our assembly together with one voice that the Lord reigns and history moves according to his purposes. And we are here in such a time in these last days put together as a family, adopted sons and daughters, empowered by the Spirit to do the works of ministry, the good works you've prepared beforehand so that you might be glorified. And God, when we do so, we pronounce and announce to the world that this world, this fallen world, is a lie. And we anticipate the coming of the kingdom, and the King and all of His glory and all of His majesty will come to reign and recreate And resurrect the dead and unite them. No longer marred by sin, either in spirit or body, and forevermore to worship the one true God. Until such a time, Lord, your church comes to you this morning, broken, marred by sin, redeemed, and yet in constant warfare with ourselves. Lord, I pray you challenge and convict us where we need and in even a greater degree comfort us through the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Lord, we pray for the unbelievers in our midst to whom all of this might be foolishness. God, we pray that you would use this morning as a part of your perfect and eternal plan to draw them to Christ through the power of your word and Holy Spirit. Lord, most importantly, we pray that your name is glorified in our midst in this time of continued public worship. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Chapter sixteen that we, we made it through was was a, a monumental chapter. The disciples are are introduced to this reality of who Jesus is, and while asking the crowds, Jesus asked them, "What do they say about me?" Some say you are John the Baptist. Some say you are Elijah, and he asked the question, "Who do you say that I am?" And Peter answers, saying, "You are Messiah, the Son of the Living God," and Jesus informs peter that is by the power of god that he even came by that knowledge and then immediately after acknowledging to his disciples yes i'm the one the long waited for messiah the one who will destroy sin and the curse and overturn it the king that you've been waiting for And the next portion that they would have anticipated would have been him saying, I'm about to march in Jerusalem, announce who I am, sit on the throne of David, throw out the Romans and all the other pagans, and we will once again have what we had for a short time under the king David. No. Instead, he announces, I must go to Jerusalem, the holy city, and die the same disciple that would recognize him as Messiah is the same disciple then that tells him may that never happen and he is rebuked for that Jesus tells him he is tempting him away from his destiny and then after that Jesus opens it up a little further and tells them not just me But all those who would follow me, who would live under the banner of my name, must also be prepared for such a destiny. Undoubtedly, the world will look at them as the world looked at Christ. And so here you have this group, this group that we watched through the life, through the ministry of Christ, through this gospel being at best wishy-washy, at worst almost seeming in unbelief, and at all times no different than you or I in our own faith. And so then we have this next moment, this moment of, of Jesus taking the disciples with them, a few of them, three. And now he's going to show them something completely different. It said, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, led them up to a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. So after this time that we just discussed, this summarization of 16, Jesus takes Peter and James and John. And he leads them, it says, up to a high mountain. Just the three of them. And it says he was transfigured. The word is where we get the the English word that's used for metamorphosis. Something transformed in Jesus. And all we have is this description that Matthew gives. Of a face shining like the sun and clothes blazing white. Now we know there's other instances where John kind of sees Jesus in his glory and he falls down as dead. We know that Daniel, there's an instance of him seeing God in his glory in some way and falls down dead. We know Isaiah falls down as dead. There's this example over and over again of this glory of God, even even a window of it being shown. But here you have to understand something is happening that is shadowing or foreshadowing from the old testament and the time of someone being brought up to a mountain and shown the glory of god is kind of synonymous with what happened to moses when he comes down from his meeting with god and they make him veil his face because his face is shining because of the encounter but but this is all in that all of this old testament imagery that is now here but i dare say they're shown something far greater than just jesus looking magnificent to them this next piece where you see peter's again peter's reaction and, and the idea that all of a sudden jesus is transformed before them and make no mistake what's being described here jesus is showing them himself in glory these three disciples, one of whom who we've watched his progression throughout this Gospel of Matthew, Peter making the confession, Jesus talking about his church and the confession itself, Peter calling him Messiah, Peter then asking him or tell, saying, no, there's no way you're going to go to Jerusalem and die. And then you have the brothers, James and John, and they're brought up there, and Jesus shows them a moment of his glorified state you have to imagine the shock if you don't if you can't imagine the shock moses and elijah begin to talk with him and they know who they are they didn't scroll their timeline and go that looks like someone i remember oh that's elijah Moses had been dead for over 1,400 years. Elijah was taken up to heaven in a chariot of fire almost a millennia earlier, but somehow they knew exactly who they were. Moses and Elijah come to Jesus and they begin talking to him. And Peter, the spokesperson, have you ever been in a situation where you were so in shock, you just automatically start doing what is kind of just proper culturally? Here you are brought up to a mountain and Jesus shows you himself in his glorified state. And somehow, you know, the representative of the law and the prophets just appear before you appear before you and began talking to Jesus in his glorified state. And you're like, well, we should probably you guys want some uh, you want some shelter. It's a hot day. Peter just starts going like off of like instinct because the situation itself is too shocking to comprehend he's like well let's let me make a few tabernacles for you the point i want to make is that when you look at the life of the disciples they had a hard time understanding spiritual truth even though they had walked with jesus even though they'd seen everything that was impossible to describe Even though they had just been told, I am Messiah. The flesh, this fallen world, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. We all live at moments, even as believers in Christ, as if this world and everything in it is what matters. John warns against it over and over again, right? Do not love this world. And at the same time, more often than not, our minds are consumed by the things of this world. The overwhelming weight of your schedule, the overwhelming weight of your career, of motherhood, of pleasing your parents. the the draw and the call of being distracted and entertained. We love this world. And so do the disciples. We live as if we believe and act in every aspect of our lives, as if this world is the apex, the height of why we're here. And Jesus shows the disciples, to quote an author, this world is a lie. He peels back the blinders and gives them a glimpse of himself in glory. And not just that, shows them Moses and Elijah weren't coming to talk to him as an equal The law and the prophets point to him as Messiah. And so they come to see and talk to their king. It also opens their eyes to a new truth. In glory, you remain who you were. Moses and Elijah didn't become a part of the ether. Or for all you Star Wars people, the force. They remained... Elijah and Moses. And their first instinct in this moment of transfiguration is to come and see the king. This moment was meant for these three disciples to go, oh, this is the truth. This one who we're now going to go watch die is going to die for their sins and all those who will call on his name. And the reason that he's going to die is to break the chains of sin and death that has broken all of humanity and all of creation. And all of creation groans for the moment when the king will return. And so when he shows them his glory, this transfiguration, he's showing them a picture of the real goal. The real goal is not to live your best life now. Your real goal is to look forward to your true life in the kingdom. And while we're here and now in this fallen world, these disciples, these three, are called to be strengthened and in particular, you'll see, to worship. We don't worship a man. We worship the triune God. And Jesus takes him to show them no uncertain way. This is the real me. You can't handle the real me yet. But glory is what's mine. Glory is what I am, glory and holiness. That is my inheritance that I give to you. They see him in this moment of being transfigured or transformed. And his face was like the sun, and his clothes became white. And there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with them. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And this is the best be quiet Peter moment in all of the New Testament. And he, while he was speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased listen to him so while peter is talking the way this is written is meant to be while he's saying these words to jesus this cloud overshadowed them or it was cloud darkened over the area and again this is a this is a harkening back to the presence of god particularly in the exodus In the book of Exodus this pillar of cloud or the cloud is representative of God's presence in multiple ways when he calls them to worship and revere him when he's protecting them from Egypt and foreign nations when he meets with Moses all this this imagery is meant to be the father this is representative of the father uh, God the father's presence being there at this moment when Jesus shows them his glory and Peter begins to announce what he'd like to do to pay honor to Moses and Elijah and to his teacher, the presence of God as a cloud comes over them and darkens the area, and then they hear this voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And in this last clause, listen to him or obey him we saw this earlier right it's signifying something these moments during jesus baptism you see the spirit coming like a dove and you hear the father's voice announcing who jesus is his beloved son and that would mark the beginning of jesus public ministry it's from that moment forward as John the Baptist would say, he needed to recede or he needed to be seen less and heard less because now the one that the forerunner was there to announce, Messiah was actually there. And then you have the three years of Jesus' ministry that we've read through in summarized form as given to us by Matthew in his gospel. And now as Jesus has already announced, we're almost there. We're almost at the end. I'm going to Jerusalem to die. And it's right before that moment now, once again, God the Father speaks about the Son. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Obey Him. He's announcing that He's pleased with the obedience of the Son. And we're not going to get into the Trinitarian workings, either... Economic or ontologically, um, although Fred's salivating. It's a Fred joke. If no one, no one gets it, I do. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. but Jesus came and touched them saying rise and have no fear. There's this idea of fear that's used throughout the New Testament, Old Testament, the fear of God, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so there's these things that that have to do with being terrified where we see people we've already announced like John in Revelation falls on his face as dead, Daniel falls as is dead, Isaiah thinks he's going to die. All these things, this idea of being within the presence of God in his holiness, and you, hopefully acknowledging your own broken and sinfulness, know you cannot live in that presence, is when they hear the voice of God from heaven announcing these things about Jesus, his son, the son, they fall as terrified because they recognize whose voice that was. There comes a time as a parent the older as your children get this is based on other people's experience not mine where your voice seems to lose the fear that it once held over your children where you could just say a word and it was yes sir and now when you do it yes sir and then you hear bruh or some kind of grumbling upstairs There's one word that if I could destroy it from the history of humanity right now, it would be bruh. Uh, Amen. I heard amens for that. So there seems to be this lessening of authoritative fear. And maybe that's natural for those of you that have to deal with that. But the voice of God heard from a pillar or a section of darkening cloud Covering the disciples has no such diminishing return. The disciples know immediately whose voice that is. They know instinctively what they're being made a part of. Unworthy, weak, sinful, doubtful, prone to fluctuations in temperament, and at the arrest of Jesus who will even after all this will still flee showing more than anything the innate fallenness of human nature but here this isn't about them this is about God and his grace and his mercy and his love for his disciples by showing himself in such a manner to these three and the voice of God confirming it and this Instance in the history of humanity is passed down to the church through God's faithful and, and true word, so that we too, in the church for all time, can look at this and be encouraged by the one we serve, the one who has saved us, and the one who has redeemed us, and the one who we wait for and long for. You see, because this world is a lie. All that you obsess over, all that you make idols of, everything around you in the world and the way that it works is twisted in a sinful manner. And yet we so easily believe the lie, or at the very least, live as if the lie were true. Where does our hope lie? Not in comfort. Where does our hope lie? Not raging at the television screen. Where does our hope lie? Not in your husband. Not in your wife. Not in your children. Not in your parents. Not in your closest friends. Now those are beautiful things I've listed that are a part of this world that are all affected by the fall. All of us would do better to focus more on the world to come. Our hope lies in the resurrected, glorified Son of God. And what He promises is an inheritance with Him. Now you may think, Ken, what you're advertising here is a life of contemplation on the future and doing nothing. No, I didn't say that. You said that. What I'm saying is that the Christian man and woman who is focused on the truth of who God is should be the greatest worker of action. Meaning, in the take our society as a whole right now, there is no argument you can make that would, would convince me that it is not utterly a time of evil. That which is ungodly is shown as beautiful and true and good. That which has traditionally been seen as godliness and ethical is bad and awful and, and maybe the worst thing in the world. And then the world that inhabits it, the unbelieving world, embraces it and says, well, That's right, evil is good, good is evil. Light is darkness, darkness is light. The truth is false, and the lie is true. The world seemingly falling apart in Western civilization is because the lie is seen as the truth. And if the Christian men and women in the world act as if the lie is the truth, well, guess what? Where are the people calling out for the truth of this world? Throughout the history of the church, Christian men and women have died as such a times as we are in. A little worm of a man in the second century named Pliny the Younger writes to the Emperor Trajan, about christians and he said these christians are such strange creatures they gather together and they worship their god on sunday and he talks about casually how he took a couple of the women who were a part of a church and he tortured them almost to death just to get them to announce that they were no longer christian he couldn't understand why they wouldn't do it and so they let them kind of stay in that state for a while And he was asking the emperor what the best way was to kill Christians. The charges against them followed as such. They would not bow down to the statue of Trajan and offer any type of of offering to the gods of Rome. And so he tried new tactics of torture with these two women. And they would not renounce their faith. And, And for some reason, some would do such a thing, but most Christians, he heard by rumor, would not do such a thing. And then, of course, those women were murdered. And thousands were as well in the coming centuries. Why? Because they were rowdy citizens? No. They were the best citizens. That was one of the early apologists wrote the same to Roman emperor, like we pay our taxes. We're good citizens. We help the needy and the poor. We uphold law. Yes, we won't bow down to other gods, but this is a polytheistic society. Faced with the choice of renouncing Christ, and this is all they had to do. They had to bow to a statue and say they renounced Christ and they would let them go. And they refused Where does that kind of bravery come from? It comes from understanding that this world is a lie. That it's broken. And that all of your hopes, if they don't lie totally and completely on the coming world, you are going to live a life of perpetual misery. Because your hope is in vain idols. Parents, take stock of the way that you raise your children. Where do you point them to for hope? What do you teach them about what life is really about? Is it academics, sports, obedience to you? Are you constantly reminding them? Endeavor with all of your heart and whatever it might be in this life, but this life is a lie. Live as one, as a sojourner, an alien, one who recognizes that this world is a lie and we're waiting for the world to come. Dedicate your life to Christ. Work to the strongest of your ability and whatever it might be, but never lose sight that why you're here and all of your hope remains on the one who has redeemed you. Husbands, sit down with your wives and remind them, remind each other in the busyness of life, we've been put together to glorify God in all that we do. And our hope is not in each other. Our hope is in Christ. In Him alone. If you're a widower or you're single, there's a reason Paul points you service of the church because you're perpetually reminded in your mourning in your lamentation that this world is a lie and your hope is in the one to come be bold in your faith be strengthened in all areas of your life through Christ who has redeemed you And like the disciples, in the worst of times, in the best of times, remember his words to them. Jesus came and touched them, saying, rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. May this be our life. Heavenly Father. Grant your church mercy when we do not resemble you. God, challenge us in the many ways that we are seduced by this world. It beckons to us with ease, with comfort, with distraction, with sin. It calls us to a life of mediocrity. It calls us to a life of passiveness. God, may it not be said of your church. Lord, strengthen us through the power of the gospel. That while we, sinners, broken, rebels, Indulging in every way in our own sinfulness, heedless of the condemnation that waited us. Lord, but you redeemed us for no good of our own, but through the good pleasure of God alone. let us live lives as reminded of of our future in glory and that the difficulties of this fallen world, the heartache, we'd be reminded and endure through such times, through the power of the Spirit, reminded of the Word, and always looking forward and upward to Christ our Savior. Lord, we pray that as we continue in this time of the Lord's Supper, in the continued worship, that you would be glorified in Christ's name. Amen. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Amen. Please stand.